Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, have you ever watched a movie or read a book where the plot did not really turn out how you expected it? You kind of had expectations that it was going to go in one direction, it was going to end a certain way, and then the further you kind of got along in that story, it took a completely different direction, and it ended in a way that you just didn't expect. I had this experience when I was 14 years old. My sister and I were heavily involved in our basketball teams in high school, and a friend of ours recommended that we watch this movie that was very popular at the time called High School Musical. Because, quote, it's about a high schooler who plays basketball. (laughs) Now, before you judge me, keep in mind, my parents did not have the Disney Channel, okay? So I had never heard about this movie in my life before. And the only reason that we were eventually able to watch it at all is because this friend so graciously decided to tape the rerun on VHS, which was a thing back then. And so I remember one night, my sister and I sat down, we put the tape in the the VHS player, we started watching this movie, and for about the first five minutes, it is about a high schooler who plays basketball. Then the movie takes a hard turn, and now the high schooler is singing about playing basketball. Move forward just a few more minutes, and now... The high schooler is singing a duet about breaking free from all the social pressures in the drama we call the teenage life. He's soaring, he's flying, there's not a star in heaven that he can't reach. And eventually, in the midst of this massacre, my, my sister and I just kind of look at each other and we say, I don't think this movie's actually about basketball. We had one expectation of how that movie was going to go, where that story was going to go, how it was going to end, what it was going to be about. And what actually ended up happening was the story went in a completely opposite, even opposing direction. And something very similar is happening here in John chapter 4. Up until this point, we've seen the ministry of Jesus focus primarily on the Jewish people. In John 2, we see Jesus perform his first miracle of turning water into wine at a Jewish wedding. In that same chapter, Jesus cleanses the temple before a Jewish audience. Later on in John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus about what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And John describes Nicodemus, Nicodemus as a ruler of the Jews in John 3.1. And at this point, there's many Jewish people who are under the impression that Jesus' primary mission is going to be the exclusive salvation of the Jewish people. But in John 4, a shift is going to happen. Jesus is going to transition his attention away from the Jewish people, and now he's going to give his undivided attention to a single Samaritan woman. And so we can kind of think of this passage as sort of a a door hinge in John's narrative. God's mission isn't what you think it is. The ministry of Jesus is not just for the Jews, 
It's going to be for the entire world. In fact, many scholars believe that's what Jesus is talking about in verses 35 through 38 of John chapter 4. There's going to be this great harvest of new believers that's not going to come necessarily within the Jewish people. It's going to come from outside the Jewish people. And God has been preparing this to happen. Now, before we dive too deep into this chapter, it would help us understand the historical and cultural background that existed between Jews and Samaritans at this time. Samaritans came into existence when Assyrians took over the northern part of Israel around 700 BC. And these people began intermarrying with the Israelites who hadn't been exiled. The result was the creation of this people group who were no longer purely Jewish in blood or religion. They had adopted religious practices from uh, both their pagan Assyrian heritage and their Jewish heritage. And in fact, many, if not all Samaritans, believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament were actually inspired. And so they rejected and ignored any other books of the Bible at this point. Move forward now to after the exile, you have Israelites, Jewish people, moving back into the southern part of Israel. And in the north, you now have a people group who are going to be deemed by these Jewish people as half-breeds, evil, unclean, defiled. And to have contact with a Samaritan, according to many people, would only make yourself unclean and defiled. So this is the cultural framework that John 4 is kind of built around. And in all this tension, John is going to teach us three important truths about God's mission that's being accomplished through Jesus. God's mission is about people. God's mission has eternal implications. And God's mission is outward reaching. Let me say that again. God's mission is about people. God's mission has eternal implications. And God's mission is outward reaching. So let's look at the first of those. God's mission is about people. In verse 6, we see that the Samaritan woman comes to the well at about the sixth hour, which would have been close to noon. This culture always started the day when the sun rose, which would have been around 6 a.m. So you have the first hour, second hour, third hour, fourth hour, fifth hour, sixth hour, would have been around noon. And this is strange for a couple of reasons that this woman would be coming to the well at this time. First, women would often travel to the well either early in the morning or late in the day in order to avoid the, the heat of the sun. So it would have been very unusual at all for, for this woman to come to the well at this time to be fetching water. It would have been the hottest point of the day for her to do that. But also, this was a strange situation because women tended to travel to the well in groups. It was kind of a social event. They'd rarely travel alone. So already, John is kind of giving us a glimpse into this woman's background. She's a Samaritan. She's lonely. And she's a social outcast, it seems. Most likely because of what we learn about her in verse 18. She's developed a reputation for being unfaithful. In other words, there is no natural reason why Jesus, a Jewish man, who's, who's even acting as a rabbi, would ever interact with someone 
like this woman. There is no natural reason why these two people would ever have a conversation with one another. It would have been considered inappropriate for a rabbi to interact with even his wife in a public setting, let alone a Samaritan who's known for being an adulterer. And so on every single level, socially, religiously, culturally, morally, ethnically, this woman seems to be the antithesis to Jesus as a person and Jesus' ministry. And yet, despite all these barriers, Jesus kind of ignores those for a moment. He pushes those to the side. And in verse 7, he says to the woman, give me a drink. Now, the woman responds to Jesus' request in verse 9 by saying, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And this verb dealings that John uses literally means to use the same utensils. Which means that when Jesus asks this woman to give him a drink, he's not just asking for her to get a cup and fill it with water and give it to him. What he's actually asking, what he's actually proposing in this situation is, why don't you pour a drink of water and you and I will share it together? And so the Samaritan woman understands how strange this would be. Which is why her response is, why are you asking me this? Don't you know, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews don't share cups with Samaritans. And Samaritans do not share cups with Jews. Now, why is this so significant? Well, remember, this woman is considered unclean because not only is she a Samaritan, she's an immoral Samaritan. She's unclean and anything and anyone she touches then will also be considered unclean and defiled, which means that they are not able to enter into the presence of God until they go through the necessary cleansing rituals to be considered clean once again. So think back to the Old Testament where God kind of establishes these incredibly extensive cleansing rituals and processes for the Jewish people. In Exodus 19, for example, you have Moses who's on Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses, go down and, and instruct the entire nation of Israel to go through a cleansing process that's going to last two days. And only then, on the third day, will I come down on the mountain for all to see. And so this is no small thing to be considered unclean in the eyes of God. And the question we should be asking ourselves then in John 4 is, how can Jesus so casually enter into a situation where by all logic, he'll leave being considered defiled and unclean before a holy God? It's not that he's acting recklessly. And it's not even that he's saying these Old Testament rituals were wrong or they were pointless. They had no purpose. What Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman and what he's saying to us this morning is that he's ushering in a new age where someone's status of clean or unclean is not going to be determined by any kind of ritual or process. It's going to be determined by the power and work of Jesus. Maybe some of you have heard this old Chuck Norris joke. When Chuck Norris does a push-up, he doesn't push himself up. He pushes the earth down. And when Jesus touches sin 
Sin does not defile Jesus. Jesus cleanses sin. You see, Jesus isn't afraid of your sin. Jesus isn't afraid of the Samaritan woman's sin. He conquers sin. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 2.17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, God's mission that is being accomplished through Jesus here in John chapter 4, and the mission that has been passed down to the church now, is not a mission that's concerned with moralism or social superiority. It's a mission that is primarily and ultimately concerned with people. Lost, broken, sick, immoral, sinful people. Now, when we talk about the mission of God and its concern for people, we can sometimes slip into this habit of creating a dichotomy between loving people, and condemning sin. And so you can kind of think of these two things as two ditches on either side of a road. On one side, you have uh, people who all they do is talk about other people's sin. And they say, until you clean up your act, you will never have a chance with God. But on the other side, you have people who say, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. God doesn't care who you are, what you think, how you live, because he's already given everything you need in Jesus. There's there's no need for change. There's nothing you can do. But notice that Jesus avoids that habit here of creating these two dichotomies. Look in verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. I mean, there's not much beating around the bush here in this conversation between the Samaritan woman and Jesus. Jesus isn't in the business of offering easy believism, where all who are sick and weary come to him, and he'll keep letting you do whatever you want. That's not what Jesus is offering to this woman in John chapter 4. He's not afraid to discuss the sin issues in her life. But he doesn't have this discussion with her in order to shame her or push her even further to the outskirts of society. This whole conversation that Jesus is having with this woman in this moment is intended to make her realize her undeniable need for the salvation that Jesus is going to offer her. His concern isn't for her feelings in this moment. It's for her soul. So God's mission is about people, but but even more, it's about calling those people to something and someone outside of themselves, the hope that is Jesus Christ. So that's the first point. God's mission is about people. Second, God's mission has eternal implications. God's mission has eternal implications. Jesus has already shown this Samaritan woman that he loves her by giving her his attention. But now he's going to offer something that's even greater than that. Look in verse 10 with me. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, 
give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, this is significant because, again, Jesus has already broken the cultural customs by even speaking to this woman. Okay, that's, that's long gone, the, the, the cultural kind of uh, regulations that would uh, be expected of Jesus. We're past that now. But now he goes even one step further by offering her the water of salvation. And the reason this is so significant is because when Jesus talks about this living water, this water of salvation, he's adopting language that's used by Isaiah in Isaiah 12.3, where he promises Israel they will, quote, draw water from the wells of salvation. In other words, Jesus is not only offering her his attention. He's extending to her the promises of God that have been made to Israel. So again, remember, this passage is, is, is trying to kind of grab our attention. John is trying to redirect our thinking. He's using this interaction at the well in Samaria to remind his readers that the gospel is not just for the Jews. Christ has come so that all might be saved. He's come so that all might taste of this living water that was in the Old Testament promised to Israel. And we're going to see that this living water he's now extending to this woman is going to have two eternal implications. The first implication is eternal satisfaction. It's no coincidence that Jesus uses water as an illustration of salvation in this passage. And actually, this isn't the first time that he's used kind of physical language to describe a spiritual reality. Just in the previous chapter, in John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you are going to have to be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Even in our chapter this morning, John chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples in verses 32 and 34 that his food is to accomplish the Father's will. But with the Samaritan woman now, he chooses water as his preferred metaphor. Now, I'm sure most, if not all of us, know that our bodies are about 50 to 60% water, which is why our body craves it so much. We rely on it to continue existing. Just a couple of days ago, I had gotten up in the morning and I was getting ready to kind of work on my sermon a little bit. And I have this blue water bottle that proudly says Cedarville University on the side. And uh, I filled up that water bottle, kind of getting ready for the day. And I always kind of drink and refill throughout the day. And at the end of the day, I kind of started to feel a little funny. I started to get a headache and I wondered why. Like, you know, why am I getting this headache? I never get headaches. And I looked at the dining room table, and there was my water bottle, still full. And I realized I haven't had anything to drink all day. My body is slowly starting to get dehydrated, and it's giving me warning signs of you need to drink water. Maybe you've been in a similar situation, or even a more severe situation, where you haven't had water for several hours. Or even, even days you've gone without water, or not enough water. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know that there is nothing that is going to be so sweet to your lips as getting water in your body again. We need water to survive. So when Jesus uses this metaphor of living water, what he's trying to tell this woman is, listen, 
I've got something that your soul craves as desperately as your body craves water. I've got something that's as satisfying to your soul as water is to a parched mouth. What is it? Well, quite simply, it's himself. Jesus is offering eternal satisfaction through himself. And it's the only thing that's going to quench this woman's thirst. She's already tried to quench it with romance. She's five husbands and a live-in boyfriend deep in her search for satisfaction and not one step closer to finding it. She's made the same error that Israel makes in Jeremiah 2.13 where God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they've hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, Jesus is the only one who is able to offer this woman the satisfaction that she's been searching for. And it's a satisfaction that will never fade, never leave her, never abandon her. All who drink of it will never be thirsty again. The second implication is eternal life. So first we have eternal satisfaction. That's the first eternal implication. Second is eternal life. This living water won't just satisfy this woman's thirst that existed deep down in her soul. Jesus goes on in verse 14 to say that this living water will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, unfortunately, the woman responds in verse 15 with, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't get it. She's still thinking in physical terms. So Jesus tries to grab her attention by telling her to go get her husband in an attempt to make her understand that what she needs is much greater than physical hydration. Now you can imagine how embarrassing and even painful this kind of conversation would be for her. We've already talked about how her life has been characterized by brokenness and abandonment. So naturally she tries to avoid the topic by bringing up this long-standing debate that existed between Jews and Samaritans. Where is the true place of worship? This is a political, and a theological question. Okay, so this is like conversational napalm. Some of you may have experienced this kind of question at Christmas just a few days ago. Someone just had to bring up a political and or theological question and ruin this false sense of unity that existed in your family. Hopefully not, but some of you might have experienced that. And it's an interesting question, but it's not going to distract Jesus from his mission. And once again, he redirects the conversation in verse 21 by saying, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Notice that Jesus twice here uses this word 
hour in his response to the Samaritan woman. He says the hour is coming, and the hour is now here. And whenever this word is used in John's gospel, it always refers to Jesus' crucifixion. How is this living water going to come? How is this eternal life going to come? How are these promises that Jesus is extending to this woman, how are they going to be fulfilled? Well, all of this is going to happen through the blood of Christ. On the cross, Jesus is going to say, I am thirsty so that you can have a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is going to face death so that we can have eternal life. Now she gets it. Now she understands who Jesus is and what he's offering. And she can't help but share the good news with other people. Which brings us to our final point. God's mission is outward reaching. God's mission is outward reaching. There are just two things that I want us to see in this last part of our passage. First is the Samaritan's woman, Samaritan woman's passion for Jesus. After realizing that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's come to save the world, the Samaritan woman returns to her town and says in verse 29, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, when I first read this verse, I actually thought it was funny that she chooses this to be her sales pitch. Come see this man who told me all that I ever did. Because on a practical level, no one really needs someone else to tell them everything they've ever done. I already know everything I've ever done. I did it. I was there, right? I don't need someone to, to kind of flesh that out for me again. But on a personal level, no one wants someone to really tell them everything that they've ever done. There are things that I've done that I'm ashamed of. I wouldn't want those things to be relived. I don't want someone to tell me those things again. I'm sure you can relate to that. And yet this woman has experienced such freedom, such joy from her conversation with Jesus that she passionately and openly shares her experience with everyone around her. But what's even more amazing is that people actually listen to her. And the reason this is so amazing is because this woman is a social outcast, right? She's a loner. She's not the type of person people would naturally flock to or trust. But she's so passionate about who Jesus is and what he's done for her that she begins to actually draw people into her story. And the second thing that I want us to notice is this woman's ability to lead others to Jesus. Keep in mind that no matter how her conversation, conversation with Jesus would have ended, she at the very least has a great story that I'm sure would have gotten her some brief attention from people. She can tell people, hey, this guy told me things about my past that he shouldn't have known. You know, what, I mean, whether he was a magician or a demon or whatever, a trickster, that's a pretty good story. But clearly, she places the emphasis of her story not on herself, but on Christ. Because in verses 39 through 42, it says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, 
They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, don't miss this, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Ultimately, this woman was concerned not with being known, but making Jesus known to those around her. She understood that God's mission was outward reaching. Well, as we conclude our time together, I just want to offer up three points of application for us this morning. Just three points. The first is that our greatest need is a Savior. Our greatest need is a Savior. We tend to use this passage as kind of the ultimate example of evangelism. And that's not necessarily a a bad thing to do. It's not a misuse of the passage. But this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman will never drive us toward evangelism until we realize it is the story of our salvation. We are the woman at the well. We are the ones who have been rejected. We are the ones who are unclean. We are the ones who have been unfaithful and are so oblivious to our own sin. And yet Jesus reaches past all those barriers And he says, come drink, for I have living water. If all we needed was more money, God would have sent us a benefactor. If all we needed was more knowledge, God would have sent us a teacher. If all we needed was self-empowerment, God would have sent us a life coach. But what we needed was a Savior. So God sent us Jesus. The second thing that I want us to think about this morning is that there's more than this life. There's more than this life. It is so easy to become so caught up in the demands and the desires of everyday life that we forget God is establishing and has established an eternal kingdom. And it's only God's mission that's going to bear an eternal reward. Your home will pass away. Your family will pass away. Your bank account will pass away. Your reputation and influence will pass away. Your forms of entertainment will pass away. And all that will matter is how you used those things to further God's mission. There is no greater investment that you can make than in the eternal kingdom of God. There is more than this life. Don't be ruled by it. Steward it well. Well, the third thing I want us to think of, and the last thing, is that Jesus is too good not to share. Have you ever had something in your life that you loved so much, you just thought it was too good not to share? Maybe it's a great story you have from life experience. Or if you're like my mom, it's a meme on Facebook that's only mildly funny. It's too good, too good for her not to share. But you just think, this thing has brought me so much joy in my life. I know it'll have the same experience for whoever I share it with. I have to share it. Friends, there is nothing else in this life that is like Jesus. 
He is Lord over all things, yet he came down in the form of a man to offer himself up for our sins so that we can be called children of God. That is a story worth sharing. So let me just encourage you, be like the Samaritan woman who was so overjoyed by her encounter with Jesus that she couldn't help but tell anyone who would listen. There is no more important message you could ever deliver in all of your life than the good news of the gospel. Jesus is just too good not to share. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for accomplishing your mission through him. Lord, for doing what we could not do forgiving us what we could not accept, what we couldn't earn in our own power. Lord, as we look in John 4, I just pray that we would see our own salvation. We were the ones that were far away from you. We were the ones that were separated from you. The ones that didn't deserve you. And yet you reached out your hand. You said, I have living water for you. I have eternal life for you. May we never forget that. Lord, may we accept that that gracious offer with joy. And in that joy, may we share that good news with other people. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.